Dedicated to the survival of American democracy in an increasingly dangerous world, this is Secure Freedom Radio with Frank Gaffney, acted as Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Policy under President Ronald Reagan, founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., the go-to man for defense and foreign policy issues, joined by the greatest minds in the security policy business, the special forces in the war of ideas at Secure Freedom Radio. With Frank Gaffney. Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Gaffney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. A man whose intelligence we've had the privilege of tapping from time to time is with us once again, I'm very pleased to say. His name is Dr. Colonel Lawrence Sellen, United States Army Reserves, retired. He has uh, a distinguished record of service to our country, both in the uniform of the Army, including in Afghanistan and Iraq, and also as a medical researcher, something he has been trained for. Uh, He's brought those skills to bear at Fort Detrick, Army's biodefense program, and also in the private sector. And uh, he's been a successful business executive, uh, as well as medical researcher. He is uh, a wonderful guest. We're always pleased to have him with us and uh, have a lot to talk with him about a subject on which he's been both deeply informed and very illuminating, namely Afghanistan. Colonel, Dr. Selen, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. You have been making the rounds of uh, programs uh, here and abroad, uh, describing in, I think, very illuminating, as I say, ways, uh, what has befallen the people of Afghanistan and uh, at our hands, uh, the world, and what it is likely to mean for both those now uh, subject to the not-so-tender mercies of the Taliban and for, uh, well, this country and the free world. And we're going to talk about all of those topics with you uh, in uh, in the generous time you're giving us. Uh, Let me start by just noting that someone who is also making similar observations to your own uh, was just featured on Tucker Carlson's Tucker Carlson Today uh, program on Fox Nation. Uh, That would be investigative journalist Laura Logan. And... um, I'd like to bounce off of you a couple of themes that, that she sounded that um, I, I think are, again, very much along the lines of your own thoughts. She talked specifically about Pakistan and the role that the Pakistanis have played in the nightmare that has been uh, our conflict in Afghanistan and and the policies of our own country towards the Pakistanis. Would you give us your thoughts on, on the Pakistan phenomenon in all of this uh, and the contribution it's made to the present, uh, well, it seems to me humiliating strategic defeat of the United States. Well, uh, Pakistan has always been a problem. And in my opinion, uh, it's the, the main problem where the United States did not succeed in Afghanistan because they never recognized that, uh, the war in Afghanistan was was not an insurgency. It was actually a proxy war being waged by Pakistan against Afghanistan uh, because uh, 
Islamic terrorism is actually uh, an element of Pakistan's foreign policy. I think we've seen over the years the attacks from Pakistan on India uh, by Islamic terrorists that are uh, hosted uh, by Pakistan. Uh, and Pakistan has always considered from its the very beginning that uh, Afghanistan should be a client state of Pakistan. Uh, Pakistan tr tried uh, to influence uh, Afghanistan starting already in the 1950s, where they tried to insert uh, uh, Islamists into the uh, Afghan uh, political system and, and failed to do so. They tried Islamic coups both in 1997 and, and 19, I'm sorry, 1977 and 1978. Uh, and one of the big problems that the United States caused itself was during the Soviet occupation of the war by the Mujahideen. Uh, essentially, the CIA outsourced the supply of both money and arms uh, to the Pakistan intelligence services, the ISI, and so they controlled the uh, the supply to the Mujahideen. Uh, in Afghanistan who were fighting the Soviets. So what the Pakistanis did was essentially uh, supply and give money to only those groups that supported Pakistan and neglected uh, Afghan nationalists. So the problem has always been uh, that Pakistan has hosted the Taliban, created the Taliban, and hosted the, the Taliban. And when you say that they were waging a proxy war against Afghanistan, I guess what strikes me is that they were also waging it against us as a practical matter by supporting the Taliban, by supporting and arming it and ensuring that uh, it was in the fight, which makes all the more stunning uh, points that uh, Laura made about the extent to which we were enabling the Pakistanis uh, to do that, that, that as she put it, uh, we basically paid for the Pakistani military and intelligence services. Uh, we'll come to the sponsorship of Pakistan by China in a moment, but, but just walk us through the double game that was being played by the Pakistanis over these past two decades and the contribution it's made to not only the loss of American lives uh, over these years and, and the uh, vastly larger loss of Afghan lives, of course, but also the outcome of the moment. Well, that's exactly right, Frank. Uh, the, the Pakistan created the, the Taliban, so they not only created it, but they hosted it in, in Pakistan, in, uh, starting with they had four uh, shuras, which were basically uh, command and control centers by the Taliban uh, all along the Pakistan border. So uh, not only that, but in these places where they had these command and control centers, these four command and control centers inside Pakistan, the Taliban were were recruiting, they were training, they had uh, rest and recuperation centers, and even the uh, the wounded uh, Taliban were being treated in, in Pakistani hospitals. I actually have a photograph of one Taliban who was, been, was treated in a hospital near Quetta, and it was actually paid by the Pakistani government $82 a day while he was in the hospital. Uh, so they had all the facilities to wage war from Pakistan 
uh, into Afghanistan. So this is completely controlled uh, and assisted by the Pakistani government and in particular the Pakistani intelligence services at the same time where we were giving money to the Pakistan military and supporting them. And these, all these centers were essentially militarily off limits. So there was actually no way we could win the war because the Taliban had sanctuaries in Pakistan all during the time that we were fighting. Were we turning a blind eye to this double game by the Pakistanis? It, it, it's unimaginable that we were unaware, obviously, the sanctuaries were there, but uh, but the direct role that the Pakistani government, the ISI, the intelligence service, and so on, were playing in, in enabling the Taliban to wage war against us and our Afghan allies throughout this period. Well, I served in, Pakistan, uh, in Afghanistan twice, Frank, and it, it was well known uh, among the soldiers there that uh, Pakistan was supporting the Taliban, and at the same time we were we were uh, funding Pakistan. So this is this was not a secret. It was known both to the Afghans and to the U.S. Army. And I I've never understood why we you know tolerated this because it made winning the conflict uh, really impossible because we couldn't go to really the source of the problem, which was inside Pakistan. Right. Laura Logan's theory is that it was just rank corruption that um, both within the military itself, our military that is, within the executive branch, and, and she particularly put a, a bullseye on the Congress and the role of its sort of permanent staff bureaucracy that was clearly subject to intense lobbying and highly effective lobbying apparently by the Pakistanis. We, we also know that the Pakistanis ran influence operations and, and spy rings on Capitol Hill over the years. So all of this, I'm sure, contributed, if doesn't fully explain uh, this, uh, this willful blindness. But what it certainly underscores, Colonel Selling, is that this mission was doomed to fail insofar as we were giving the Pakistanis a pass. Uh, and not only that, but billions and billions and billions of dollars no less, to enable them to wage this proxy war against both us and uh, and our friends in Afghanistan. So this, this brings me to the next point, which is China and the role that China has been playing in this conflict to date through, if, if the Taliban are proxies for the Pakistanis, I think it's fair to say the Pakistanis are proxies for the Chinese, are they not? Oh, absolutely. The uh, Pakistan uh, has always been a close ally of China. It had never has been an ally of the United States. In fact, they, uh, China calls Pakistan, or they call each other, all-weather allies, that they will always be allies under, under all circumstances. So I, be, behind all this is, is China, in fact. And what I expect to happen is uh, I mean China has always been interested in controlling uh, South Asia, and what I expect to happen is that, uh, among other places, yes, but uh, I expect China to recognize the Taliban government very quickly, uh, and I also expect them uh, to try to implement their plan for economic and military dominance of South Asia. Now, this is going to involve. 
China uh, encouraging Afghanistan to join the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, which is the flagship of China's Belt and Road Initiative. I also expect China to start uh, exploiting uh, Afghans, Afghanistan's mineral wealth, which is, is, is huge. Uh, and I also expect that China will uh, begin to build military bases uh, in Baluchistan, uh, Baluchistan province in Pakistan, which is on the Arabian Sea, uh, and at the mouth of the Persian Gulf. And, and this will actually, these military bases, which I know are un, being planned, uh, will link up with the uh, Chinese military base, naval base in Djibouti, which is at the mouth of the Red Sea and the entrance of the Suez Canal. So it'll link to that and also be the other link with the military bases that China is expanding in the South China Sea. With Their intention is to control the vital sea lanes, not only the Persian Gulf, but all along the northern Indian Ocean. Colonel Sullen, you've got a very impressive strategic overview of what's going on here. And I think your observation that the Chinese have been behind all of this speaks to something I talked about in my commentary today. And that is, when Laura Logan talks about, as she put it in her conversation with Tucker Carlson, quote, the Afghans will tell you the United States chose this outcome, unquote. My suspicion is that Joe Biden was told to choose this outcome by the people who have deeply compromised him and his family and so many others in his administration, uh, namely the Chinese Communist Party. And one of the things, and I'd just be interested in your response to this, that it seems to me is now absolutely necessary. You know, there's increasing talk about um, impeaching Joe Biden over all of this, among other, I think, acts of uh, omission or commission, malfeasance, uh, subversion. But in the last impeachment, the second impeachment of Donald Trump, a transcript of a conversation between then-President Trump and the Ukrainian president featured prominently. It would seem to me that we have at least as compelling a need to know what were the contents of the so-called conversation between President Biden and Chinese Communist Party General Secretary Xi Jinping back in February, a two-hour long conversation. Now, for those of us who've been watching Joe Biden, um, it, it's it's simply unimaginable that he could sustain a conversation of any kind for two hours, uh, even back then, a few months back. My contention is that were we to have such a transcript available, it might well show Xi Jinping using the opportunity essentially to dictate to this compromised president of the United States and may well shed light on, among other things, um, the kinds of things that the Chinese wanted him to do in and to Afghanistan. This is conjecture, I grant you, but uh, I'd be very interested in your response. Well, in my opinion, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that uh, Joe Biden is compromised by China and his whole family is compromised, but it goes far beyond that. Uh, the people around 
uh, Joe Biden are compromised by China. If you look at his national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, he has a long history of, of working with uh, various organizations that have very close links with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, the same goes for... And, uh, and before you leave that, worse yet, espousing explicitly and repeatedly China's so-called rise as a good thing and something to be not only uh, welcomed but encouraged. Yes, absolutely. And it also the Secretary of State, uh, Tony Blinken, again, has a long history of connections with the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, I think it goes back to what you just said. They see China as the rising power. Uh, they want to manage the decline of the United States, uh, largely for uh, you know, financial benefit, perhaps their their own financial benefit, but certainly for the the globalists who are supporting uh, the rise of China, uh, they would prefer to see a Chinese type government uh, in the United States, one which is uh, state capitalism plus totalitarianism. So I think all these threads are are pointing towards some type of accommodation by the the people in power in Washington D.C. today. Uh, and communist China. You know, on this question of uh, how expansive is the compromise of senior folks in this administration, starting, of course, with Joe Biden himself, some of our colleagues associated with the Committee on the Present Danger China, Lawrence, have uh, done some very, very valuable research and documentation of, I think, over 20 individuals now, um, some in the legislative branch, but mostly in the executive branch, who have these kinds of compromises in their their uh, background. It, it can be found, folks, at accountabilityinitiative.org, and I really commend it to everyone. You, you cannot understand what's going on without having some appreciation for the degree to which this president has selected and entrusted in key portfolios, many of them having to do with China, by the way, people who are, I'm afraid, in China's pocket. And it does go some way to explaining how this, uh, well, humiliating strategic defeat has come to pass, I think. But we need to see the transcript of this this conversation to get greater understanding of uh, what has been done, who's making the calls, and to whose benefit. Um, Lawrence, let me just ask you to drill down on something you touched on there, because it's it's something that I, I think is a sort of context uh, for all of this. Um, we have clearly a an elite that is seemingly now really enthralled with this globalist agenda. The, the Great Reset is what uh, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum in Davos calls it. And it seems to be something that is embraced by um, a growing number of people in corporate boardrooms in this country, certainly in the financial sector and uh, in academia and in the media and in political life. All of which I think it's easy to document is something that the Chinese have been working assiduously to cultivate. But I'm, I'm interested in your vision of the relationship between the globalists on the one hand and the Chinese Communist Party on the other. Um, Do they have, as you see it, not only a shared immediate agenda, namely taking down this country, but a common 
vision of what comes next, or do they have different uh, outcomes in mind, but are willing to make common cause against the immediate foe, namely us, uh, and then we'll sort out their differences uh, subsequently. What's your take on all of that? Well, I think they they all have the same point of view, uh, both uh, the Chinese Communist Party and, and the globalists, which you you just described. Uh, they don't see uh, the United States or China, for that matter. They don't see it as a country. They see it as a land and people to exploit. So th- th- that's the basic idea that they have. Uh, they So they don't believe in nationalism, and therefore they don't they would like just just to have uh, not have any countries at all, but have some type of world government. And in order for that government world government to function, it, there would have to be some type of of uh, state capitalism and, and certainly author- authoritarian, if not totalitarian, in order to control these populations. So I think it, it, these people basically have the same view of how to exploit land and people, and, uh, and nationalism just gets in the way of that. Are you suggesting then that these capitalists, as they've been described, global capitalists to be sure, are really communists at heart, or are at least comfortable with the prospect that a, a Chinese communist-style economic and political system would be the end state towards which their reset actually is driving us? Yes, they're basically authoritarians. You know, they see a government like China as being preferable to a messy democracy. So they they agree on those basic points, the type of government that they need to have in order to exploit uh, both the land and the people. And the the Chinese, they see the Chinese Communist Party as uh, the route to do that. We're we're often told, of course, that they are capitalists, but uh, perhaps it's a more accurate way to describe them as sort of fascists in the sense that the state uh, working with the, you know, sort of uh, private sector can accomplish uh, the kind of exploitation that you're describing. And uh, it certainly is antithetical to freedom and uh, the kind of country that we have been privileged to live in and love and serve in our various capacities, and and must be resisted, it seems to me, at every turn. Lawrence, uh, speaking of all of this, there has been, as a very important focus of your efforts and, and research of late, an especially ominous vector in the, well, the Chinese call it unrestricted warfare that they have been waging against this country for decades, and that would be biological warfare. We only have a few minutes left, but uh, could you give us sort of an overview of your assessment at this moment as to uh, the nature of that biological warfare program, its objectives, and how what's happened to us as a result of this, uh, well, I think of it as the CCP virus, um, is a portent of what may be to come at the hands of the Chinese communists? Well, first of all, China's biological warfare program is massive. It is not just uh, contained in the in the military. Uh, they have a core program in the military, which is secret, which covers uh, all their military research institutes and their uh, hospitals. But it, it also includes uh, what we would consider civilian universities and civilian research centers. In China, there's no difference between military and civilian research, and they have mandated the uh, fusion of those sectors. Uh, 
so they see uh, it as, as part of their unrestricted warfare program. It is not, according to their military doctrine, it's not just to be used during war, it's to be used pre-war. And I think uh, COVID-19 is certainly an example of that, where you have a destabilizing uh, or debilitating or an, uh, econ that is economically debilitating uh, virus, which essentially uh, has given China an upper hand in the world because they were falling behind. So that was very useful. There also have been uh, thoroughly infiltrating our R&D sector in the United States. So in essence, we have been supplementing China's biological warfare program through the presence of uh, People's Liberation Army and uh, communist, China, uh, communist Chinese scientists in the United States, working in the United States, not only tapping into our knowledge and skills, but actually using uh, uh, U.S. government funding to support the program that is operating within uh, communist China. You talked about this a little bit with us last week, I know, but um, it, it's, it's just stupefying that uh, this kind of penetration has taken place, not only to the extent where we're providing, as you say, um, research insights and, and, and tools and financing for their biological warfare program over there in Wuhan, notably, but elsewhere as well, I think, but that we've been training and affording opportunities for heavens only knows how widespread technology transfers from our own research institutions here in the United States um, through Chinese nationals, some of whom are PLA, People's Liberation Army officers, um, back to uh, the motherland. And uh, I mean, like the unbelievable story that we've just described with respect to our willful blindness about Pakistan and China's role behind it in taking us down there in Afghanistan. Uh, this story about the biological warfare program is, is simply so gobsmacking, I guess is the only way to describe it, that um, it, it, it's, it's a, a real criminal indictment, it seems to me, against, well, some of the prominent figures in the government today, but uh, it has to be said, to some extent at least, those who've been in positions of power and influence in the past as well. And I, I just, I cannot express adequately, Lawrence Sullen, my appreciation for the tenacious, rigorous, and highly informed way in which you have gone about documenting these travesties and bringing them to light through various platforms, including this one. And it's, it's so vital if we are to save this republic that we be clear-eyed about um, these enemies, foreign, well, and domestic. Yes, uh, yes, indeed, Frank. I, I completely agree. I think we've been uh, neglecting uh, what I would describe as medical intelligence and our ability to uh, not only understand what uh, the Chinese are doing in biological warfare, but also the extent of, of the infiltration that has uh, transpired over the last 30 years, uh, again, accessing not our skills and knowledge, but also our, our funding. And the problem is that this is continuing. I mean, th this is still in operation. There are still PLA and, and Chinese Communist Party scientists in the United States uh, working with their colleagues in mainland China and using uh, US funding to do it, and it's, it's, it has not stopped.
Let me just a concluding question, I guess, to you, and and we could spend another hour easily talking about this. But you've served in, as I mentioned, the uniform of the United States Army with distinction. You've been in and around some of the most sensitive programs in our country, as well as you know uh, some of the wars in which we've been involved. You have experience in business and in medical research. Let me just ask you, speaking to an American audience of patriots, I'm quite sure, how are we to explain the absence of effective, well, counterintelligence at a minimum, or, or for that matter, any other sort of adult supervision with respect to such momentous things as, uh, as you know, understanding the nature of the war we're in in Afghanistan, for example, or understanding the, the degree to which we may be greatly empowering our most mortal adversary, namely the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I think first of all, our, our intelligence agencies are, are not are no longer objective. They've been completely uh, politicized. So what they're doing is is not feeding uh, objective data uh, to the politicians, uh, but they're uh, they're uh, altering it in such a way that uh, it is more acceptable to the views of those of those politicians. So it's. It's really been influenced by our own politics, which has infected the objectivity of the the intelligence services. So we're not uh, investigating or, or obtaining reliable information to actually make the proper decisions. Worse yet, I would argue it's been actually weaponized now to the point where uh, those intelligence services are seemingly focused on the threat of white supremacism inside the United States, um, which seems to be both... Um, unwarranted by the facts, but also um, completely at odds with their mission, which is supposedly, you know, overseas adversaries uh, understanding and, and helping effectively counter them. Lawrence, this is a deeply troubling conversation, I'm sorry to say, as uh, as increasingly are those we have with other guests. Um, but I believe that we have a duty to make plain what is going on in and to our country. And you're uh, shedding very important light on it, and I hope you'll continue to do so with us uh, again in the near future. And we're appreciative of your time today, and Godspeed, my friend, and uh, come back to us again soon. Next up, we'll speak with Lonnie Elliott. We'll drill down on another facet of this crisis with Afghanistan, namely what to do about the refugees. That and more. Straight ahead. Visit us at facebook.com slash securefreedom with Frank Gaffney.